This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and apparently the end of abortion rights in America. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me. Susan Matthews, Slate's news director and the editorial director of this podcast. And I'm joined by Amy Littlefield, who is a correspondent for The Nation covering abortion access. Amy, welcome to The Waves. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Today, we are here to talk about what's happening at the Supreme Court with Roe versus Wade. And it's been a really big fall. So the first thing I'm going to do is just give a little primer (laughs) to start off and try to explain where we are. Last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, and it explicitly asks the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. And what it proposes is that the new limit at which the state of Mississippi will be able to prevent women from accessing abortion is 15 weeks. But if Roe is overturned, states could actually implement all kinds of restrictions that are tighter that happened earlier. And so when Dobbs was argued at the Supreme Court last week, My takeaway, and I'm curious what your takeaway was, that it felt like the questions and how it went made it really clear that there are probably five votes on this court to overturn Roe versus Wade. There is sort of an emerging um, consensus among a lot of legal experts and court watchers that that's uh, what the writing on the wall says. So that was what happened last week. The other case that I wanted to bring up that maybe we'll talk about a little bit because it's relevant to a piece that we're going to discuss is what's happening in Texas. Texas's SB8 law, this law is a lot more extreme than the one coming out of Mississippi, and it hasn't exactly followed the clear pattern that the Dobbs case has. But in September, the Texas legislature allowed this to go into effect, that it would ban abortion for any reason after six weeks of pregnancy. And the enforcement mechanism of this law is the part that's really bizarre. It allows any individual in the state to sue anyone else who aids or abets an abortion. And it was kind of deliberately crafted in this way to make it just legally tricky. And the Supreme Court basically responded to it by like putting up their hands and saying, this was legally tricky. We can't do anything about this. And they let it take effect. And since then, there have been like several different forms of litigation that have been argued about this from the state of Texas, from the Department of Justice. And it was also argued in front of the Supreme Court. And so we're waiting to see how the Supreme Court will rule in both cases in June. And I kind of think that that has set us up in an interesting way, or at least I think it's set up the Supreme Court to say no to Texas's law, which is the more extreme one, and then to say yes to the Mississippi case and to say, oh, look, we're being reasonable. And so they won't ban abortion at six weeks, but they will ban it at 15 and overturn Roe v. Wade. And then they'll be able to say, we were reasonable about this. Right. Look what a neutral decision we've made here. I mean, I think you're right that that is exactly what's been teed up in front of the Supreme Court. Um, And I think there were those, you know, I was on a Federalist Society webinar listening to their take um, not too long ago. And there are folks on the Christian right who are frustrated with the Texas law because they feel like the Dobbs case was part of this very carefully orchestrated plan to bring a 15-week ban in front of the Supreme Court. 
as part of the sort of slow rolling incremental approach to eventually overturning Roe v. Wade. And then Texas, you know, comes out of nowhere with this bounty hunter law and everyone's up in arms about it. But in fact, I think you're right that it may serve the Supreme Court's purpose of, you know, trying to sort of mollify people. And we've seen that before at the state level, right, with abortion restrictions, when legislatures have passed, you know, everything from a heartbeat bill to a 20-week ban. They've sort of moved the bar so far that legislation that is transparently in violation of Roe v. Wade can start to look reasonable and, and has become accepted over time. To me, it felt like last week was a real moment of a lot of people realizing, oh, wait, the Supreme Court might actually overturn Roe versus Wade just because of the Dobbs case, not even because of Texas. But I think that that gets some of those reactions to these different cases is is a bit of what I want to talk through with you. So we are going to take a break here. But when we get back, we'll start digging into all of that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We're back. Amy, I wanted to have you on the show basically because as soon as I read the piece that you recently wrote for the New York Times, which is titled Where the Pro-Choice Movement Went Wrong, and we'll link to it in the show notes, I thought, yes, this is something that we need to be talking about, and it's a really hard thing to talk about. I just wanted to see if uh, we could start off a little bit before this fall, and if you could just tell me a little bit about how you started reporting on this and kind of what's happening within the abortion access movement that most people might not be aware of right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think, you know, based on what we just talked about, right, with what we're seeing at the Supreme Court, this is unquestionably a historic low for the abortion rights movement, right? And very few people within the movement would deny that. We are at a point where we're very close to losing the nationwide right to legal abortion. And we've seen, you know, year after year of record anti-abortion laws coming out of state legislatures. And so I really wanted to take a step back and say, how did we get here? And of course, you know, there are a million factors, maybe not a million, but there's a lot of factors that the abortion rights movement can point to that were well beyond their control. Gerrymandering, voter suppression, um, Citizens United, you know, there are any number of factors that have allowed wholehearted embrace of abortion as a political issue by the Republican Party in a way that we really didn't see on the other side, you know, in terms of the Democrats and the way that they treated abortion rights over time. You know, but I wanted to sort of set that aside and and based on what I was hearing from activists and advocates and, and experts within the movement, understand how the abortion rights movement is sort of reckoning with its own mistakes. You know, there were several trends that emerged that I, I laid out in the piece, but I think the chief mistake or or one of them that, that has really stuck with me is, is the way that the movement sort of failed to act with urgency 
over time, beginning back in the 70s, you know, really soon after Roe v. Wade, on the erosion of the rights of Black women and people of color and Medicaid recipients, you know, poor people in particular, those rights were sort of the first ones to disappear. Um, And the failure to really react, you know, and shut that down (laughs) when it happened and the willingness to sort of compromise that away over time and let it become accepted practice was part of part of what led us to the moment where we are now. Um, Another, you know, really important theme was the neglect of groups in the states and the, the relative underfunding of state level battles, which is where the anti abortion movement really put the bulk of its energy <laughs> um, on the abortion front and, and succeeded in passing an enormous number of anti-abortion laws, which have now made their way up to the Supreme Court. I wanted to get into the piece a little bit now. It starts with a story about like what exactly happened in kind of a TikTok after that SB8 law in Texas went into effect. So it starts with this story about the fact that Planned Parenthood the like national director of organizing a Planned Parenthood brought together this this Zoom call and everyone tried to get on to talk about it. And it was definitely it seemed to be infiltrated by somebody on the anti-abortion side who said a racial slur. It was like a very terrible situation. Obviously, they got off the call. But to me, that that story was like it kind of encapsulated a lot of different problems with the movement to me. The first was, and I'm going to quote a line from the piece, you said, the lack of preparedness was not an anomaly for the movement, which has grown accustomed to reacting to crises rather than preventing them. One of the things that I felt, and I think a lot of people felt watching what happened with Texas is that when that law went into effect, I kind of felt like, wait, they're really going to let this happen? And I don't really know who I mean when I say they there. But like if I'm expecting anyone to do something or be prepared to respond, it's definitely Planned Parenthood. And so the fact that Planned Parenthood was kind of seemed like was organizing even the call to deal with it, like after I had already probably written or edited a few news stories about it just seems really late. Do people at Planned Parenthood have this sense of we're behind? You know, it's an important question. And I think there were several things happening on that Call, right? And I do want to acknowledge Planned Parenthood had SB8 on its radar, you know, before it went into effect on September 1st. Um, they were involved in litigation leading up to September 1st when SB8 went into effect. Their Texas affiliate had fought a battle over an ordinance in Lubbock, Texas, that succeeded in stopping abortion at the Planned Parenthood clinic there. And that ordinance, which made Lubbock a sanctuary city for the unborn, had civil litigation language that was very similar to what was in Senate Bill 8. Um, And so, you know, it wasn't as if they woke up on September 1st and said, what? (laughs) Texas. And, And this was a coalition call. So this was a whole bunch of organizations, but Planned Parenthood was the, you know, hosted it on its technology. Um, And so when there was a security breach as a result of the fact that nobody who was coming onto this giant movement call had to pre-register, you know, Planned Parenthood took responsibility for that. And, you know, I think it's true that within the reproductive rights movement, you know, Planned Parenthood has such an outsized influence and responsibility that they've almost become synonymous with reproductive rights, itself, right? Like, I think the average person who sort of supports abortion rights, but isn't super involved, like, 
when they hear about a crisis in a place like Texas, their sort of knee-jerk reaction might be to write a check to Planned Parenthood. So I think that is when I talk to groups on the ground and in the states, they said that's sort of part of the problem, right, is that these national organizations are where a lot of the resources and the political power are concentrated, but they're not necessarily there on the ground understanding what's what's going on. And and this so this call on September 2nd was organized in response to the fact that the Supreme Court had issued this ruling saying that, yes, in fact, it was not going to stop. Senate Bill 8 from from going into effect and shutting down, you know, almost all abortions in Texas. But, you know, I got the most sort of insight into the situation by talking with the groups on the ground in Texas and asking them what they had been dealing with, you know, starting when this bill was making its way through the legislature. So months before most of the country heard about Senate Bill 8 and, you know, on September 1st, They were in the Texas legislature, staying there until late into the night, you know, almost midnight in the middle of a pandemic in Texas, you know, terrified of getting COVID um, to testify um, in front of a legislature that basically, you know, was going to pass this bill, (laughs) but they, they felt they wanted to show up and voice their dissent and they did everything they could. They really tried to drum up press coverage. They, you know, dropped banners over highways. They, they staged protests. Um, they, sta- you know, they, they gave heartbreaking testimony. And a lot of these organizations that are working in the state that were fighting this bill are also direct service organizations. And a lot of them are run by women of color. And the reason why they're so committed is that they are the ones who are you know, kind of acting as de facto travel agents, you know, booking plane tickets and bus rides for the people who need to leave the state or, you know, trying to help them raise money so that they can afford an abortion in a state that's made it so hard over time for for people to do that. Um, and those groups really like one of to paraphrase, like one of them, Diana Gomez, she works with a group called Progress Texas. That's sort of a communications group. Um, she said, we felt like we were screaming and nobody was there to hear us. But they were also trying, and I think what they've been doing for the past several months now is trying to figure out, we're an organization that's devoted to abortion rights. How do we split our time and energy and specifically our money between trying to uphold this law at the national level and and doing advocacy and doing things around that? And then I think there's this other thread where if you're really passionate about making sure that women can get abortion, isn't the better use of that money to just make sure that the women who are in Texas right now who can't go to a clinic in Texas to get an abortion have funding to go to New Mexico, to go to Oklahoma, can actually afford to do that. And so that tension, that specific tension between the very practical, how do we pay for women's abortions, and the very abstract, how do we do the amount of advocacy that we need to do? How do we raise awareness about this? How do we get people who are not living in states where these rights feel threatened to care about this? That feels like one of the central tensions in the movement. And it seems like a lot of people have a lot of different answers to how you balance those two needs. Do you feel like right now in Texas, because we're in such a crisis moment, specifically there with with access to abortion, and we're in this crisis moment with Roe v. Wade, like how are they dealing with that? And do you do you sense that there's like a strategic choice being made or that everyone's doing a little bit of both? Well, and there's an added layer of it too, right? Which is that because of the way Senate Bill 8 is written, which, you know, let's pause for a minute and remember 
this law has been in effect now for three months, right? There is a near total abortion ban in effect in Texas. And like a lot of the, you know, national media explosion has moved on, but that is still, an emergency is still ongoing for, you know, people in Texas who are pregnant and don't want to be. To your question about how these groups are balancing it, I think, you know, that's true. And it's also, I mean, to to give Planned Parenthood credit here, also, like they're a safety net healthcare provider. They're providing a lot of abortions in the state of Texas. There's also independent providers that are doing that. But I think that's always been a problem for the movement that they have to provide the health care because it's been so siloed from the rest of the medical system. They have to fund the health care um, in a lot of cases because the Hyde Amendment, again, which I referenced earlier, passed in 1976, um, ban on federal funding for abortion has rendered it off limits for, you know, many, many Medicaid patients unless they live in a state that's decided to authorize its own state funding for, for Medicaid. So they're having to fundraise <laughs> to pay for the health care, you know, and that's largely done by abortion funds, which are organizations that, you know, have always tried to fill that gap and that can never fill that gap that's been left by, you know, the federal government. You have the political wing as well. And so, yeah, the the movement is having to do all of those things. And in terms of like the, the way that the Texas groups are are working on the ground, like I think there's this added layer that Senate Bill 8 implicates them, right? And was actually specifically written to target anyone who helps someone get an abortion. So they made it so hard to get an abortion if you're poor in Texas that you need an abortion fund or... You know, in the case of Jane's Due Process, they're an organization that helps minors. So these are teenagers who need a parent's permission if they want an abortion under Texas law. So if they can't get a parent's permission or they're in custody or, you know, any number of things, they have to go before a judge and petition for an abortion. Um, And that can take weeks. So, you know, Jane's Due Process is the organization that helps people with that. Um, Their budget only recently just topped a million dollars. so, you know, small grassroots organization. So, yeah, the Senate Bill 8 was written specifically to target anyone who aids or abets someone in, in getting an abortion. So it's it's targeting these organizations. So they're having to be very careful because they don't want to get sued and bankrupted for helping people get to care. For me, right when SB8 came out, I remember thinking, like, as somebody who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and is, like, very in a very different world from this, but I remember immediately thinking, like, okay, who in Texas is going to bring the first lawsuit about this? Like, what pregnant woman is going to do this? And that expectation is totally wild. Like, it's totally wrong, I think, in some way. And and like you're saying, the the risk that the organizations have to take on, the financial risks are huge. And it brings me back to thinking about the fact that I feel like there isn't enough awareness of it, even in the original case of Roe versus Wade, like Jane Roe did not get her abortion. <laughs> like Mary Doe, who was also in the Doe versus Bolton case, those women did not actually receive abortions. They were just plaintiffs in the case and and had actually really complicated stories, both of them, because they both were poor women who definitely went to try to access help. And then their cases were brought all the way up there. But the process that those cases take through the legal system takes years. So it's just what we ask the individual women and even the individual abortion providers to take on in order to to do this just feels to me really extreme. And yet I also can't help but feeling like we need to have a better plan here. Yeah. And I think there was a different framework for thinking about it too, 
that emerged, you know, in 1994 is sort of this turning point, right, where the reproductive justice framework emerges, um, where Black women get together on the sidelines of a pro-choice conference and come up with this term reproductive justice to describe sort of a more sweeping framework for the fight. And what they really said is abortion as a single issue, not working, (laughs) because for them, they're dealing with, you know, state you know, state enforced sterilization, right, in that history. They're dealing with, um, you know, a lack of social safety net and um, and wanting to be able to raise the children that they do want in safe communities with the support that's needed. And so this was a, a sort of expansive framework that sort of demanded aggressive action, right? Because you know, you could look at it and say, well, Roe v. Wade's been the law of the land since 1973. So, you know, what is there to really move on when it comes to reproductive rights? And I think what the reproductive justice movement said is there's a lot (laughs) of progress to be made. And so there was sort of this more defensive position, though, within a lot of white-led national organizations over time. And, you know, I think it's only now because of the Black Lives Matter movement, because of the sort of wider national reckoning over racial injustice and sort of individual organizational reckonings that we've seen within a lot of the leading reproductive rights groups um, over the past several years, you know, finally, that that reproductive justice as a framework is really sort of moving into the mainstream. Um, so I think, you know, I sort of argue in the piece that that was the alternative that didn't necessarily get the, you know, attention that it deserved over time. And, you know, I highlight an early moment that happened, which was after the Hyde Amendment, so this ban on federal funding of abortion, Um, 1976. In 1978, Planned Parenthood has its first Black woman president, Faye Waddleton, and she really tried to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, we're going to fight on Medicaid funding for abortion. She really made that a center point. And she got a huge amount of pushback from within affiliates of her own organization. So what happens over time is Democrats and abortion rights groups sort of let the issue of of federal funding and public funding of abortion become sort of a routine budget item. And again, it's only recently that reproductive justice groups like All Above All have really, you know, renewed that fight and and led to some historic progress on the issue of of restoring um, funding of abortion. But I think moments like that, where there were efforts to sort of go on the offense, often the, the path forward was sort of more defensive and much more focused on litigation as a strategy for defending against the kind of like fire hose of anti-abortion legislation that was coming out of state legislatures. I mean, if you're going to be focusing on the litigation, you're going to be in the defensive posture and then you're not taking that kind of more proactive, broader, more sweeping approach to the whole topic, which is also a political approach. And I think we're going to take a break here, but talking about how all of this affects democratic politics is a little bit of what I want to get into when we come back. But if you're loving the show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes like last week's about whether Kamala Harris can turn her vice presidency around. With the 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Amy, there are a bunch of different schools of thought about the kind of what will happen if Roe is overturned. And the one that I think is kind of the most optimistic is the idea that, oh, well, if Roe is overturned, that will actually activate tons of it of Democratic voters and it will make them realize what's actually at stake and it will bring people to the polls and it will cause this like massive surge in voting for Democrats. And it, and it could actually be a good thing. Like that's one of the arguments about what's happening now. My sense, and this is really just based on like probably my Twitter feed, <laughs> like no actual reporting. My sense was that I felt really surprised how muted the response to SB8 was. And then I felt like last week there was much more of an outpouring and much more of a reckoning and much more of an awareness of of what's about to happen. But I was curious to hear a little bit about at the grassroots level what people think about that kind of optimist framing of the overturning of Roe versus Wade and what you think the response has been to what's happening in Texas and what's happening with Dobbs. I think a lot of the grassroots organizations, you know, abortion funds, groups that work on getting people to care, especially in states like Texas, are number one, completely exhausted (laughs) and overwhelmed and frustrated. You know, a lot of them, I heard like frustration. They spent the spring and summer trying to drum up national media attention for this law that they understood was going to end legal abortion as they knew it in the state of Texas and really impact the clients that they served. And then, you know, it wasn't until the law went into effect that all of a sudden they're flooded with requests for interviews. <laughs> so, you know, to your point about national attention, like I do think there was quite a bit of attention on SB8 and there was quite a bit of attention, you know, on the Dobbs case. And I think, you know, the media you know, spotlight tends to move on to other things, which, I mean, there's a lot going on. (laughs) Um, 
But I think these groups are focused on how they're going to get people to care. And they're really not focused on the Supreme Court anymore or necessarily on what the Democrats are going to do. So I was outside the Supreme Court on Wednesday during the arguments. And, you know, there was this real sense that activists are debuting a really bold, unapologetic messaging. You know, the tagline um, that was on display at that rally was liberate abortion. So this was not like trying to win over moderate Democrats, right? (laughs) Or, you know, convince Joe Manchin. What a lot of these grassroots activists are doing is saying, as understanding, this is going to be a long fight ahead. And what's going to be needed is mass cultural change, so they were debuting sort of the the messaging and also the tactics that are going to be needed after the nationwide right to legal abortion falls. And I think I, I observed that in a direct action that I saw the group Shout Your Abortion did a direct action where four people who had had abortions in the past stood in front of the court and took Mifepristone, which is the first drug that's used in, in the two um, medication regimen, typically for a medication abortion. And they had obtained those pills legally from the group aid access. And they were sending the message, you know, you can't stop us. And Amelia Bono, as the founder said, Republicans might have the courts, but we're having abortions, right? Like there is this element to which because of access to these medications that were not available, you know, before Roe v. Wade, that abortion to some degree is in the hands of people who are, you know, gearing up and getting ready to support each other. But what's so interesting to me about that and the way that you're describing it is that to me, that set of techniques and those tactics, they feel a little bit like they're copying the pro-life tactic book and just taking it from the other side. Like instead of we're going to aim at Joe Manchin and our senators and the apparatus that is supposed to help us. Instead, it's, as you said, it's aimed at the grassroots. It's aimed at creating a a coalition of people that those politicians can't ignore rather than convincing the politicians. One of the things that I always think is that it feels so unbelievably frustrating how organized and unified it feels to me that the pro-life movement is from, from the outside. And do you think that that's a lesson that they've taken and they've just decided, no, we're just going to kind of mimic what this this group did that from the other side? You know, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if there's a conscious effort to mimic the pro-life movement. I, and I was talking to some historians about this, like just about the arc of how the anti-abortion movement won. <laughs> it took yes. them 50 years, but like, yes. and of course, you know, public opinion, like it's not, they have, they certainly have not won um, public opinion necessarily, but they have, you know, won the federal courts and a lot of state legislatures and the Supreme Court and, you know, um, done enough to sort of stymie things in Congress. Your point is totally correct about the fact that, One of the things that's so specifically infuriating about the pro-life movement, I think, is that they act like we're the majority and they're absolutely not the majority. They're just they've just achieved this very specific court victory that that's kind of what they've done. So I was talking to um, historians about this because I was trying to understand Roe was this like cataclysm for the anti-abortion movement, right? Like they went from a state-by-state fight where they were trying to push back on efforts to repeal restrictive anti-abortion laws to all of a sudden overnight abortion is legal nationwide. And it was hugely galvanizing 
and, you know, new people entered the fight, people who are already engaged in the fight got, you know, emboldened. And also it wasn't that like black and white. It wasn't then like all of a sudden they're winning, right? Um, There already was groundwork being laid before 1973. Like there already was an anti-abortion movement that was doing work in the States. And then, you know, it took many years, you know, it took almost 50 years of, of slow, intimate, you know, person to person work. And I was talking to um, Jennifer Holland about this. She's a historian, wrote a book called Tiny You about the anti-abortion movement and, you know, how they would go into churches. They would go into Sunday schools. They would go into sex ed classrooms. They would go, they would often bring like fetal models, you know, and, and really try to like, foster this like intimate connection between, you know, people and fetal life, quote unquote. So there was this like sort of very personal, you know, movement building work. And I think the parallel to that, and I wouldn't say they're copying the the anti-abortion side, but I think the closest parallel to that is the abortion storytelling movement and is, um, organizations like We Testify, they're, you know, one of the taglines that they use is everyone loves someone who's had an abortion. And they're trying to get everybody to understand, you know, if if they're going to turn the tables and they're going to start winning and they're going to push back against this onslaught, then people need to understand how closely this quote unquote debate over abortion rights is related to their own lives and to the people that they love. And I think that's the sort of like culture change work that is going on. And it's hard because the other side has been very successful at advancing a deep stigma against abortion. And I talked to several, you know, people outside the court who had had abortions and it took them time to decide that they were going to talk about it, right? Or even tell their families about it because there is this enormous cultural stigma that the other side has been very successful in pushing. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you mentioned that history because I've been doing a lot of reading on Roe v. Wade. And it seems to me that even between 1971 and 1973, like between when Roe v. Wade got to the Supreme Court and when it was decided, there was a turn in between those arguments and when the case came down where like there were a lot of decisions that were made where Republicans realized that there was a small number of voters who were really single issue voters on this and that they could be activated and brought over to the Republican side because of this. There was a story that I recently read about Republicans would go out to Catholic churches in Santa Barbara and set up voter registration like switch tables, basically, where they would have the priest would preach about abortion and then they would come out and and have them change their voter registration. Like that was part of the huge realignment of what happened. And I think that one of the things that has always baffled me about abortion is that one of the things that you hear is that even people who have had abortions personally are still against choice. And you think about why that is. And it's because there's this values-based proposition that somehow anti-abortion proponents have like disconnected from the personal experience. You can have had that personal experience and still from a values perspective say, I have to be pro-life. And so disentangling that is actually a really, a really interesting aside of, of how that is. So many people who are working in this movement have grown up with Roe and then with Casey and just 
many, many people, maybe in particular people who aren't working in the movement but would be supportive to abortion rights, just kind of take it for granted. Do you think that this this moment has caused the people who are outside of the movement to realize, oh, I can't take this for granted anymore? What are the people on the ground feeling about the support that they're getting now? You know, it's interesting. I see your point that, yeah, people, you know, the younger generation has been raised, they've never known, you know, a a time before Roe, but they have known that incremental creep. I don't know. And I I saw this, I went to the rally for um, abortion justice, which happened a month after, it was on October 2nd, a month um, after SB8 went into effect. And there were a whole lot of young people from Texas, very energized, very emboldened. And you could see how sort of like the fire of Texas, where it wasn't just Senate Bill 8, like it started a long time back, you know, with waiting periods and ultrasound laws and, you know, attempts to shut down basic health services. Like, there's a lot that these young people have experienced, even in a relatively short period of time. I think that has sort of forged this new generation that really does have reproductive justice and intersectionality as their dominant framework. Um, In addition to many of them, like personal experiences, having had to seek an abortion and go before a judge and ask for permission and, you know, wait for weeks and deal with all of that, you know, that has really mobilized a lot of people. And I think the ranks of a lot of grassroots organizations and abortion funds are are full of people who have struggled and not necessarily only in red states either. People who have struggled, like I talked to someone um, outside the Supreme Court who had had a really hard time, had had spent three months trying to figure out um, before she was able to finally get the abortion that she needed in California um, because she was a low-income college student who didn't have a car and there were wait times for appointments. So you know, it's it's complicated. I think the incremental erosion of abortion rights has brought its own sort of political um, politicization, if you will, um, for the sort of new generation of leaders coming up in the movement. To me, there's the personal stories. And then there's also like everybody has also witnessed the unfairness of what's happened with the Supreme Court. I felt like there were people who listened to oral arguments last week that I've never listened to oral arguments before. And so there's kind of a, a witnessing of what's happening at the Supreme Court that I feel like is is a little bit new. And I think it's clear that, you know, there are definitely certain justices on the court who are very concerned about that. We now have like six months to wait before we find out what the justices are going to do. What do you think we're going to see during this period? And what do you think people in red states or blue states, what do you think they should do as we wait? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see people gearing up for this to become a state by state battle. And I think, you know, one of the weaknesses of the abortion rights movement that I point to in my New York Times piece is that there's been a decades long under resourcing of state organizations. And so I think it's an open question, you know, whether and to what extent that's going to change. But I think a lot of groups are recognizing that this needs to be, you know, a state by state fight. There have been, you know, there are national organizations that specifically focus on state and local legislation. Um, And so there certainly are efforts in the states to shore up abortion access. We've already seen, for example, city councils in New York 
um, Austin, Texas, Portland, passing measures to um, increase funding for abortion access. We've seen efforts to, you know, in my home state of Massachusetts, became the first to repeal um, parental involvement law. So there is a lot going on at the state level that should, you know, get attention. And so I think there's going to be more and more going on within local organizations, you know, working in national coalition to figure out the logistics of how to get people across state lines and put them on planes and buses and help them travel to get to clinics if they need to get to clinics. And I think there's also going to be robust grassroots involvement um, and investment in um, self-managed abortion and figuring out how to get abortion pills into the hands of people who can't or don't want to travel hundreds of miles in order to access an abortion clinic. An alarming issue, too, is the extent to which independent abortion clinics are really closing at a high rate. And the fate of those clinics and the future of those clinics hangs in the balance, I think, in states like Mississippi. You know, the last remaining clinic is an independent clinic. And um, that's who is fighting this fight before the Supreme Court. So I think the whole landscape of abortion access, again, it's been changing. This is not not going to change overnight. It's been changing slowly over time. And But I think there's a lot of preparation going on among national and state organizations who are recognizing that this is going to become a 50-state fight. And that fight is going to look really different and access is going to look really different from place to place, not just state to state, but, you know, city and city and county to county. So if people are wanting to understand more about what that looks like, you know, look at what's going on in your own state legislature and city council. And, you know, in addition to watching what's going on at the Supreme Court. Thank you, Amy, so much for joining me, for bringing your reporting to the show and for talking through this. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. I'm our editorial director, and June Thomas provides oversight and moral support. If you like the show, please consider supporting The Waves by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. We have two very special Waves reunion episodes coming up, and we'd love to get questions from you. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.